Welcome to the Fordham Intellectual Property Podcast with your online editor, Anthony Zangrillo. This week, I'm joined by Darry Schwartz, a second-year law student who is a law clerk at the Davis firm PLLC, a boutique entertainment law firm. And we also have special guest, Steve Gordon, who is an entertainment attorney with over 20 years of experience and has provided legal services to companies like MTV, Sony Music, Time Life Films, and Music Choice. Steve specializes in the production, distribution, and financing of music, TV, documentaries, feature films, and entertainment products, as well as operates a music clearance service for producers, filmmakers, and labels. Steve is also the host of a podcast called The Future of the Music Business. He recently released a book, The 11 Contracts That Every Artist, Songwriter, and Producer Should Know. Thank you for joining us, Steve. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. So first off, I want to talk a little bit about the new book you're releasing. Could you tell us more about it? Well, this book is published by Hal Leonard. It's actually the second book of mine they've published. The first one was called The Future of the Music Business. Uh, this book, uh, which is the 11 contracts that every artist, songwriter, and producer should know, is based on and was inspired by my actual experience as a music lawyer in the last decade after leaving Sony. Uh, for instance, I got a lot of new clients who wanted me to prepare management, producer, artist agreements, and I noticed that I couldn't find reliable forms um, online or even in the law library. For instance, someone wanted a composer agreement for creating new music for a movie, so I had to create my own agreement after I got a friend or two to share a form. and. Through the years, I've created a lot of new forms based on my experience like that, uh, working with clients who've brought me forms to review or who had contracts that they wanted me to prepare. And I thought there would be a real need, uh, especially on the part of emerging artists, songwriters, and producers, to have this book that included all the forms that they might encounter in the early part of their career. Uh, but more importantly than the forms themselves are the detailed conversations or discussions I have with regard to each form of agreement. So there are certain business standards uh, that these forms operate in, and I wanted to explain what those standards are, and I wanted to give uh, the artist, producer, or songwriter the pro-talent agreement, which I do, and also the pro-company agreement, which I also include in the book, and to discuss the differences and the issues involved so that the creative person doesn't come out on the bad part of any deal. Steve, I just want to say I'm a huge fan of your book, The Future of the Music Business. Um, I, hold it up, I hold it up next to, uh, to Passman's All You Need to Know About the Music Business. So thank <laughs> you. Thank you, thank, you, thank you for writing that. And I'm also a big fan of your podcast, so I'm so happy to have you on today. Uh, thanks a lot. Yeah, I wrote both books because I saw a need. Uh, Passman's brilliant, and I wouldn't want to match anything he tried to do or did, but The Future of the Music Business was one of the first books that focused on digital distribution of music, uh, whether it was downloading or streaming, and to explain uh, how the money was generated and where the money goes. So that was the point of that book, and it did very well because it was the first book as I said, that focused on digital. This book is completely different in that 
it's intended to help emerging talent uh, with the forms that they encounter and which I deal with almost on a daily basis. Uh, so I have chapters on management contracts, uh, production deals uh, that are offered by producers who want to shop artists for label deals, uh, artist agreements, music publishing, music producer contracts, sync licenses for the placement of music in audiovisual works like the movie, uh, composer agreements as we've discussed, live performance agreements, uh, and what you have to look out for when you're playing at clubs and going on tour, music video production contracts, investment agreements in case you can get your wealthy aunt or uncle to invest in your career, which would be great, uh, and band agreements. And one of the things I'm most proud of in the book is that in the con chapter on band agreements, rather than just explaining a band agreement, which I do, I also tell you what you can do as an artist, producer, or songwriter without a lawyer and what you should do in case you can't afford a lawyer, including registering your songs uh, or your masters with the copyright office and doing a simple agreement for a trademark if you're in a band so you know that somebody leaves the band whether they can use the trademark or not and uh, joining a performing rights organization, which is almost free and which is very important uh, because these uh, organizations, I'm talking about ASCAP, BMI, or CSAC, could be very helpful with the songwriter slash artist career and I explain why uh, in that chapter in the book. So the book is all about helping emerging songwriters, artists, and producers uh, and explaining the agreements that they're likely to encounter. Um, last word on the book is that it's available at Amazon and at um, a website called Backwing. So if you just Google 11 Contracts Amazon or 11 Contracts Backwing, uh, you can find the book. And uh, one other word about the book before we go on is in the first page, uh, there's a website and a passcode that you can use to get uh, additional video content. Uh, and that video content are discussions of the contracts themselves, and also we have panel discussion of the role of the manager, the role of A&R, uh, and so forth. And as we go on in time, uh, we'll add more video content to that link. Um, so uh, that's the 11 contracts that every artist songwriter through the channel. Fantastic. I already have a copy. The main topic of this podcast, we're going to be discussing, is there a legal distinction between an album, a mixtape, and a playlist? So the first work we're going to be talking about is Drake's recent release of the playlist, More Life. So now he released this playlist via Apple Music, and this work is a curation of 22 new tracks. And it's caused some debate within the industry on how we term what this work is. So uh, Steve, could you talk a little bit about, is there a legal distinction here for this playlist? Well, it calls it a playlist, but... Um you know, it looks and sounds uh, like an album. It's a collection of tracks. Uh, what's different is that it's online only. Uh, and we'll be talking about two other examples of online music only. And that, of course, couldn't have happened 20 years ago because there was no online, basically. And uh, so this is a completely new phenomenon. Now, Drake is a, an artist with a record company. Uh, Def Jam, which is the vision of Universal. Uh, and traditional record contracts uh, call for the artist to make a so-called album, which is usually defined as uh, 
a certain number of tracks, for instance, at least 12 tracks, or uh, music that can not be less than 40 minutes in duration. And so the question arises, would this constitute an album? Now, the importance of that issue is that recording contracts with major labels usually call for the artist to deliver an album, and then the record company has options for additional albums, which they implement or exercise if the artist is successful. Is successful, and of course Drake is <laughs> incredibly successful. So the label would like to have as many albums as they can uh, in order to keep the artist uh, working with them so that they can make money with the artist. So would this constitute an album? Probably yes, because it is a certain number of minutes, it has a certain number of tracks, and it's in Drake's uh, interest to call it an album so that he can finish his delivery requirement to Def Jam as soon as he can in order to get a better record deal either with Def Jam or another label. So I don't think that this would have called for much negotiation or discussion um, because it is an album, although it's online only. The issue of whether to release online only or to release it exclusively to one streaming service, such as Apple, is a discussion between the record company and artists and his management and his lawyers. So as we were discussing before uh, the program, Anthony, uh, when I was at Sony, I noticed that Michael Jackson was re renegotiating his deal every year. Now, Sony, Epic Records, had a firm deal with Michael when he was signed many decades ago. But in the career of a successful artist, contracts are renegotiated all the time because the artist can simply refuse to go into the studio and record another album, and the label wants to make money. So the label will renegotiate the deal uh, with the artist uh, to keep him happy and keep him recording. Mm -hmm. So in the case of Drake wanting to do online only, it's a discussion because technically the contract probably called for the record company to have discretion to release it in any format that it wished. That's the basic standard deal. But if an artist as successful as Drake wants something, the record label would sit down and talk it out. Steve, can you just touch upon a little bit of how the issue of uh, exclusivity would, would tie into this? In other words, Drake has an exclusive recording agreement with Sony, so if he wanted to release the playlist on his own without the label support, he wouldn't be able to do that, correct? Well, uh, in the case of uh, More Life, which uh, I was discussing, he was with Def Jam, not Sony, which is a division of Universal, and every contract with every big record label is going to say that the artist cannot release a record with another label. And that's something that's still honored in the music business. Now, Drake probably does record with other artists as a guest performer, but even that technically requires uh, the permission of his home record label, which they're happy to give because they want to keep Drake happy. But generally speaking, uh, an album or this kind of playlist that uh, Drake calls More Life can only be released through the auspices of his record company, and that's what exclusivity means. 
It's interesting. It seems like the star power of the celebrities basically changes the contract that you really still have to keep them happy. You don't want, you know, to all of a sudden end relationships with them. So if all of a sudden they come to you and say, well, no, I want to do this streaming thing. They may say, oh, it's okay. We'll make like an exception to this contract. Well, exactly. And that's not anything really new. For instance, when I was in Sony in the 90s, if Mariah Carey wanted to do a television special with, say, CBS to promote a new album, uh, we were happy uh, to work with her to make that happen. And we would negotiate a separate agreement or an amendment to her recording agreement that would uh, focus and particularly deal with that television special in terms of what we could do with it, when we could release it, uh, whether it would be a DVD or not, and what Mariah would get from it in terms of income. So all of those issues would be a separate negotiation from the basic recording agreement. So, yeah, this is nothing new. Uh, when an artist gets to a level of success and they want to do special things that aren't necessarily contemplated in the basic agreement, uh, the record company will be happy to have those discussions. If not happy, then they'll have the discussions because they want to keep that successful artist happy. Oh, exactly. Now, moving on to something that was termed an album is Kanye West's work, The Life of Pablo. And really with that was it went through so many different iterations. My question is, what was the actual album? When was it finished? Was it the first time it was released or was it the different changes that he made to it? Well, if you ask Kanye, he may tell you that the album is still not finished. Of course. Uh, <laughs> he keeps on uh, offering... Uh, different remixes, uh, different versions, different arrangements of all the songs. Now, again, this would have been a special negotiation uh, between uh, Kanye uh, and his record company, uh, which is also a division of uh, Universal. Um, and the discussion would be, does this constitute one album or more than one album? Because he keeps on creating new versions. Uh, does this constitute, say, two albums? So if he had a five-album commitment to Universal, that this would have satisfied two albums or not. That's the conversation between the record company and Kanye. Uh, and also part of that conversation would have been, although these conversations are completely confidential, of course, additional advances of money uh, so that Kanye could afford to go over all over the world and record new uh, sessions, uh, which he did with Life of Pablo. I mean, things like that cost money, and if management asks for additional advances uh, from the record company, the record company is going to uh, do the best it can to accommodate an artist as successful as Kanye West. Yeah, it, it's interesting because sometimes in the definition of album and recording agreements, you know, you'll see uh, the definition include. Um, that albums must embody new recordings of artists' studio performances. So it's interesting to see whether, you know, um, a label could use that language against the artist if he wants to make new iterations or just work with the artist to create the viral sensation. Well, one thing this is not is a live recording. Um, everything was, uh, you know, very uh, sculpted in the studios uh, to give exact sound that Kanye was looking for. So the issue of whether a live recording constitutes uh, a commitment album uh, wouldn't have been on the table. Often live albums are not considered uh, in terms of the commitment requirement. 
this for the artist. Uh, but what would have been discussed is whether all these additional reiterations of the same track uh, counted as additional albums fulfilling Kanye's uh, delivery commitment or not. Um, I imagine that the compromise would have been something like, we're not going to count this as an additional album, but we'll give you a whole lot of money uh, for you know recording uh, and as it dances against recording royalties. You know, basically what the record company does is pay a recording royalty to the artist, but they give advances up front to support the production costs and also as income for the artist. So advances and royalties are always up for conversation uh, with successful artists. Now, moving on to our final example, Chance the Rap. He recently made history by being the first artist to chart on the Billboard 200 and win a Grammy based on his streaming-only release, Coloring Book. And as with all the rest of his releases, he calls the mixtapes. So where does this fall? Well, let's first talk about what a mixtape is because it's a very confusing term. I'm going to use Chance the Rapper as an excuse to get some clarity on what a mixtape really is. You know, as it's, the history of it is, if someone really loves some music, they wanted to share it with their friends, they'd uh, put together different tracks on a, a cassette and give it to their friend. Uh, and it would be free. Uh, with the demand of hip-hop, uh, artists and DJs would put together the best of their live performances or some tracks that were pretty rough, that weren't really finished yet, that weren't album ready, but they would put them together for promotion and usually get them for free, not always. Uh, some of the early uh, hip-hop people sold them to like uh, chauffeurs who um, took um, musicians who were successful uh, around uh, to drop off and to pick up. And uh, they would buy mixtapes from some of the early hip-hop artists uh, because uh, their passengers love to hear new music. But generally, what a mixtape was is a, a recording that's not quite finished uh, that artists, uh, producers, and DJs will give away uh, to promote their music. Now you got the phenomenon of Chance the Rapper. You know, it's uh, so interesting. Like in the early days of, uh, say, uh, Cool Herc and uh, early uh, rap artists like that, they weren't signed to major labels. And they would do the best they could uh, to make money from, say, selling their mixtapes for a few bucks or from uh, live shows. Well, Chance the Rapper is a really special phenomenon because he's a guy, unlike the early uh, guys of uh, hip-hop, who never really made it financially, that has had huge success without a label. Those early hip-hop guys didn't have labels either because the nature labels didn't understand hip-hop. But Chance has brought back the early days of hip-hop, so to speak, by doing it without a record label and becoming incredibly successful without one. So when he refers to Coloring Book as a mixtape, it's kind of a almost a, a joke because it is free. You don't buy this as an album uh, at Sam Goody's, which there is no Sam Goody's at Walmart or Tower anymore. Right? You can't buy it anywhere else. 
where music is still sold or CDs are still sold, you can only get it on streaming services. And it is free, but you're paying subscription fees uh, to hear it in many cases. Uh, and also, Apple actually paid Chance the Rapper uh, for the exclusive rights uh, for Coloring Book. So he's making money, uh, even though he's in a way giving it away for free, he's not. And um, that really has changed the game uh, because he's the first example of someone without a record company who's used the internet to actually win Grammy awards. You know, usually institutions like the Grammys uh, or Top 40 Radio, they only deal with big record companies because the big record companies support them financially. Chance has broken through uh, that uh, standard business practice and managed to become very successful without a record company. And he uses the word mixtape to refer to coloring book because it is free, but it's not. Yeah, well, it's good for him. He won't have to do any more Kit Kat commercials. So. <laughs> hey, he might do another one, but for a whole lot more money. <laughs> All right. Well, Steve, thank you so much for joining us. This was a great topic. Um, once again, I want everybody to pick up the 11 contracts that every artist, songwriter, and producer should know. It's uh, really great. And we're going to have some links in, uh, you know, the, on the website so you can pick it up. And uh, any final words, Steve? I just think that uh, the world is uh, changing so much that I'm trying to keep up with it myself and trying to give the best advice to my clients. Uh, and that's what the 11 Contracts is all about. And I want to thank you, Anthony and Barry, for this opportunity. Thank you, Steve. We really appreciate you uh, having, having you on the podcast. Thanks. All right. See everyone next week.